and welcome to this episode of Harp on That String. Um, I am Kimberly Taylor, harpist and sometimes composer and creative being, and I have with me today another composer creative being, um, composer and organist Christopher Wicks. Welcome, Christopher. Thank you, Kimberly. It's a pleasure to be here this afternoon. And we are full of really good pie, and um, we're now enjoying some coffee and sitting down to talk about this life we live as musicians here in 2020. And the number one question I've been asking my guest is, how did you get here? How did you get to be this organist composer? What took that child, that child who's running around free, and an instrument ends up in their hands. I mean, and an organ. How did an organ end up being your thing? Oh goodness, what what an interesting question. And I, I, I'm glad that you I'm glad that you asked it because it takes me back to so many wonderful and joyful things. And um, I, I will tell you that um, I grew up in Silverton, Oregon, uh, a small town 15 miles away from Salem, where we are currently sitting. And um, I lived for the first nine years of my life in this little, this little nondescript housing tract um, with these little you know, cookie cutter houses. And I, I, I don't quite know how to describe it. It's not really very interesting in itself. It, it should have been what you might have described as a kind of drab existence, but of course nothing seems drab through the eyes of a child. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that great? Yes! Great thing about childhood, I guess. Isn't that a great thing to remember <laughs> about yes. kids? Nothing is drab. It was, a bit, it was a bit like The Wonder Years, if you remember that, that, uh -huh. that television show. And anyway, my, my, mother had, um, my mother had studied the piano when she was a little girl for I think about seven or eight years. And she decided that now that she was an adult, she, she, she had set it aside completely. She was going to, they were going to buy a piano and she was going to take it up again and find a teacher and study some piano, resurrect her skills a little bit. Although she always insists, she always uh, asserts emphatically that she never really got very good at the piano. And I, I don't really know because I don't really remember hearing her play. I don't really remember hearing her practice. I guess that could be the key. Um, but I just remember um, being about three years old and seeing this thing come into the house and thinking, wow, what is this? And, and, and getting up to it and like touching one key and then another key and it making these sounds and, and, and trying to put them together and it being chaos and discovering that it was so frustrating that it was mostly chaos, but then discovering that if I, if I, if I listened carefully and if I repeated certain patterns and it wasn't just chaos, it sounded like something more interesting than chaos. It sounded beautiful and musical. And so, um, wow, I guess there, there was, there was some persistence and they, they took me for lessons with my mother's teacher, who I think was also trying to teach my sister, who, who never took much of an interest. And at first I thought, well, this, this isn't very much fun because in lessons they, 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 they try to regiment it. I didn't know the word regiment, but that I was resistant to that at first. But well, you then, were how old? Four. Four, yeah, four-year-old four is going to be resistant to regiment. You think so? Yeah, you think I think so, so yes. Well, but then they said, you know, if you really want to get good at this, you're, you're going to have to endure some lessons. You're going to have to learn how to read music and you're going to have to have some, again, they didn't use the word regimentation, but I guess that was it. And then they took me back when I was five. And by the time I was five, I was very interested. I just took to it like a fish to water. I, I began to learn how to um, take my mother's piano books, the music she was trying to learn. And it, it took both of my hands to do it, but I would um, play, um, play the music that she was playing just, just, just the right hand only, just the treble clef, and I taught, and I taught myself to very fluently read the treble clef and then the bass and so forth. And anyway, maybe I'm spending too much time on the early childhood. I have to mention that the composing kind of entered the picture at the same time, just at the age of, really, at, 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 the, at the very tender age of, of five, but not in a serious way. I'm afraid, not like Mozart or Mendelssohn. 
I just had this fascination with music notation. So I would take these um, sheets of, of staff paper, or if that wasn't handy, I would draw my own mm -hmm. staves, and I would cover them with music symbols. And they weren't necessarily musically literate, but I'd draw like, oh, here's a, here's a, a quarter rest, and here's a, it, it wouldn't add up. Pretty. It wouldn't add up to anything you would play. It was kind uh -huh. of like that fairies air and death waltz. Um, oh yes, that's, that's, that's circulating on the on the internet right now. Although I think it's actually copyrighted and it's not supposed to be circulating. It circulates all the time. It, it does, I'm afraid. It's been circulating for a decade. Right. It's 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 very clever. I mean, it's sort of this impressionistic visual art with um with uh -huh. musical symbols. I I I used to do things like that, and then I'd give them to mom, dear dear mom, dear patient mom. Her name is Nancy, by the way. And I'd say, well, gee, mom, can you play this? And she'd say, well, it's not really playable, my dear. It's not. It doesn't make any sense. And I thought that just meant that she wasn't a good enough musician to, to interpret my masterpiece. But then finally, by the time I was about nine and had more schooling and more of the regimentation, then I could produce musically literate um, competition, compositions, pardon me. And I, I guess I won some competitions and so forth with a little dance suite that I composed through the, the Oregon Music Teachers Association and some similar um, maybe some similar organization. And then you asked about the organ, mm -hmm. also a pertinent question. Um, church was a part of my life, singing in um, children's choir at church. Um, my home church didn't have a fancy pipe organ, although I probably would have enjoyed organ music more if we had. I remember some young people from another church that did have a fancy pipe organ asking me once if we had one. And I said, oh yes, of course, which was, um, not the truth. We had chimes, and I saw the chimes with their tubes, and thought maybe that those were pipes. You didn't know the difference. I, I didn't yeah. know the difference. It was just a it was just a, a medium range um, kind of electronic organ. But then, shortly before my thirteenth birthday, someone in the church decided that I could probably pick up the organ, and moreover, I could pick it up well enough to start on my feet and learn on, my, learn on my feet and start playing every other Sunday right away, um, especially if I help, had help from some lessons, and I could be paid for it, what sounded to me like an absolutely princely sub, although it wasn't. <laughs> uh, it, was, it was going great for someone of my age especially. And, um, How old was that again? Sorry? You, How you, old was I? Uh -huh. I was 12. It was shortly before, short yeah, before my okay. 13th birthday. I didn't have any idea what to do with the stops. They were they were a complete mystery to me. It was it was complete um, experimentation like that. I was putting down eight foot stops and four foot stops and sixteens and so forth. It didn't. I had no idea that the eight foot stops were the foundations and the four foot sound was an octave above and so forth. No one explained this to me um, at first until I started taking the lessons. Of course, which wasn't until a few weeks after my debut, <laughs> which should have been a disaster. I I, I guess it wasn't by some miracle. And um, then somehow, um, I guess, lots and lots of practice later, all these recitals, all these concerts, a certain number of competitions, three degrees, the terminal certificate from the American Guild of Organists. And I'm sitting here talking to you in this um, wonderful room with your beautiful harp across well, from us. Well, thank you. And... Well, I wish I could provide you a pipe organ. I mean, I think it's the ultimate addition to every house. Oh. I think oh, everyone well, should have a pipe organ installation. Wouldn't this be lovely? Wouldn't that be a wonderful world? <laughs> Thank you. I, <laughs> I did, builders would like it. <laughs> I did study for a while with um, William Falk, um, F-A-W-K. He was one of the organ teachers here in Salem. Mm -hmm. I, I studied with him for a while when I was a teenager. He had a pipe organ in his house, which I believe he yeah. had kind of largely built himself or, or, or cobbled together himself. And I think there, there are a few organists who install them in there. In their houses, but it's a it's a pretty pretty big expense for. Um, yeah, for, I know they are. Yeah, for that's like a, a, a personal dwelling. I mean, it's the only it's only you're either you're a professional organist. With a with a with a family money, or, or you're you're like a super villain, you know, <laughs> you have an organ. Well, and I hear that. Yeah. Um, I hear that ancient Greek kings in pre-Christian times, ancient pagan Greek kings were fond of having pipe organs. They mm -hmm. had hydraulic-operated right. pipe organs to show what big cheeses they were. Right. 
And then sort of when they became the official religion of the Christian church, it was sort of, well, not the official religion, the official instrument, the big instrument mm -hmm. of the, the, the most proud instrument, so to speak, for the Christian church. It was like a way of saying, we're going to take that pagan pomp and we're going to dethrone it from its role in paganism and we're going to put it, I did not put know it into the was... church instead and say, this that used to serve this kind of cruelty and this kind of um, you know, you know, paganism is going to serve the true God instead. And so then that I wonder why they did with that organ, but then basically assumed that all the other instruments were, were pagan in, in origin and diminish them. But well, they, they did that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, maybe some strands. But I know, but, but no, they but they scooped up the organ, but that's interesting to know. Of course, I mean, it, it, organ's been around, pipe organ's been around a lot longer, listeners, than most people realize. I well, mean, invented like in ancient Egypt? Is yeah, that it's like, yeah, it's like, it's as old as, as, as the harp, you know, it's when this, this concept of wind being thrown through a tube. Mm -hmm. I mean, but you know, it's a lot easier to blow wind through a tube with your mouth, like a flute, right? Than to make this machine. I know the with bellows and it. put it through, uh, like through a keyboard. When you think about it, I mean, pipe organs are so much less convenient of a way of putting um, wind through tubes, right? And flutes. But it would you, but it would be a great way of showing off how rich and powerful you were. I guess. And I guess. Yeah, it, it, it puts me in mind, and I'm already getting tangential. And it's okay. 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 That's no, what this no, is for. No shaming. All right, when I was, um, I, for a while, too, this is another, uh, this is an alley I went down and didn't finish. I was working for a while on a PhD in music history that eventually turned into a second master's degree only in performance instead. And anyway, I had this fascinating German teacher, great guy, and he thought I should try writing a dissertation on, um, Athanasius Kirchner, who was a 17th century Jesuit, who um, is said to have been, quote, the last man who knew everything. And he didn't really know everything, of course, but he tried to know everything. And he was probably a little bit insane. And he had, in his approach to life, a very odd mixture of sort of medieval approaches and modern science approaches, kind of blended in yeah. this very idiosyncratic kind of generalism. And he wrote to a certain extent about music theory. And one thing that he wrote was that the universe was like a giant pipe organ and God was the organist. Oh, well, that makes sense. Oh, yes. Why not? It makes a great deal of sense to me. Totally makes sense. Why not? It's as good as the earth rides on the back of a turtle. That's, you know, that's a great one. That's from, um, uh, from First Nations, you know, is that, mm. I forget which tribe it is that says that the earth mm. rides on the back of a turtle and uh, what's underneath the turtle is another turtle, you know, it's turtles all the way down. Sounds a bit like a Dr. Seuss book. Yeah, exactly. The turtle, yeah. You know. But you know, there's wisdom to the Seuss. Yes. yes. We all grew up on him. I don't know if you read Seuss as a child, but oh, I know course. I did. Of course. My poor mother, because she read to us all the time. And, Good for her. It's a oh, great yeah. thing to do for your children. Yes. I guess if you yes. have them, which I don't. My know. mother had, you know, there was a keyboard in the house and piano, um, and yes, and we were we went to the library and she would read us books and mm -hmm. it was like a reading time almost every day and of course the sibling fight of who got to pick first and who got to sit on the lap versus not on the lap because the lap could only fit one child at a time, and you know that sort of thing. I know I played around with, when you grow up with a piano in the house, mm -hmm. um, it, it, I think as musicians, it's hard to imagine people growing up with houses without keyboards. Now I know that that's not oh, the norm okay. anymore, but I grew up with a baby grand. Oh. You know, my dad bought my mother as a wedding gift. Mm -hmm. He bought her a piano. He got a deal because his father was a minister. He got a really good deal on a good piano through the church, through his dad's, you know, through his dad's church. And so he was able to provide this absolutely glorious instrument that's still there and still playable and still a good instrument. And because of that, the children got up, we made thunderstorms, that's what we like to do. We would get, yeah, we would get the, you know, we get the loud pedal on and, okay. and we would get the bass going 
and we'd have like the rain and the lightning. That's what we like to do. That's my sister and I both did a great deal of thunderstorms. We both studied mm -hmm. um, lessons with my mother. And, uh, you know, I didn't take to it oh. really that much. No, I played for a while. I was six years old. Didn't stick to it. I maybe was ready. I also tried ballet back then too. So imagine. did I actually. Yeah, and, and um, that didn't take either. It's difficult. Oh, it is so difficult. But I'll tell you the, the big takeaway I got from ballet, mm -hmm. that is that everything worth doing is so much harder than it looks. Because don't you agree, ballet is so much harder to do than it looks. Oh my goodness, it's, I really admire dance. Oh, so do I. And, and it hurts. The, the stretching that you have to do and uh -huh. I like you see them do things and you think well sure I can do that and then you try to do it and you can't do it and they're like uh -huh. well there's this stretch and so you just do this stretch every day for a half hour for 10 months and then you'll be able to do that well it's true and on the instrument too you I have know, to do that extra exercise you have to practice those scale patterns you have to practice your arpeggios. You have to learn your keys. Well, kind of, except because with the piano, I was kind of able to do a lot of things right away. I think maybe ballet is like that versus some people too. You think so? I think so. Well, I, I once met a woman who was a dancer who said she was a natural contortionist. Uh -huh. So I think maybe her body was just able to do a lot of ballet things just like off happen. the bat. I mean, but anybody can train themselves mm -hmm. to dance. Right. You know, anybody can you can you can be trained to dance, but whether you have that natural like that flow. For me, the harp was a natural flow. Oh, great. My hands went, I had a natural hand that went into the right kind of positions. Mm -hmm. I mean, don't get me wrong, teacher yelled, but still, you know, I, it, it, it became natural. The piano did not come naturally. Mm -hmm. I've spent time with it since. I have, I can actually play it. Whether I can play it well, it's an entirely different story. Let's talk about composing and it coming mm -hmm. naturally, because I understand that now Ned Roram, a composer whose works you probably have some familiarity with, mm -hmm. he, he's an essayist too, as you're mm -hmm. probably aware. One of his essays... Actually, I don't know much about Roram other than his harp works. Oh, well, he writes some lovely essays, and some of them are very uh, confessional, and mm -hmm. maybe some would say a bit TMI. <laughs> but he also writes some about music, mm -hmm. um, you know, about music. And one thing that he, he, that he writes is that he is strongly of the opinion, and I hope I'm not misquoting him, and if he ever hears this and I'm misquoting him, I'll feel terrible. <laughs> that he, he, and, he and I barely know each other. I just send him a birthday card every now and then. Um, he thinks that it would be much more possible than we realize to teach composition to persons who are sort of only semi what we might call musical, like to elementary school music students, to middle school music students, so forth, to um, music students who are just um, hobby musicians, amateur musicians. We, talk, we, we, we cloak composition in particular in a lot of mystique <laughs> and act as though it's for everybody to sing, it's for everybody to play a little, but composition in particular is just really abstruse like the idea that you can think of a melody that's your own and actually write it down and come up with some appropriate uh, chord sort that uh, i didn't catch that lesson I, I mean i remember i went into my my teacher one day and i'm like i could write a piece and she's like show me mm -hmm. instead of going she was surprised that i said that you know what i mean that's like when i said hey i would like to write something she's like you would? Well, write something, bring it to me, we'll okay. work with it. And she had a master's in composition. And and so I did. And she looked at me and was like, well, yes, you can do that. And she encouraged me and I started writing around then. I, you know, as far as getting it all notated, I wrote a nice little ABA form, you know, with standard chord progression, whatever. I didn't know what those things were. You see what I mean? So yeah, it's like, yeah, I, okay. Well, my childhood teachers were very encouraging. Yeah, I was very encouraged. Very encouraging, but they were non-composers. Uh-huh. And they seemed very, I thought, disproportionately amazed by my ability and interest. Mm-hmm. Disproportionately amazed. I, yeah. And so what, what Mr. Roram, what Ned was saying was we could actually demystify this and probably teach it to a greater extent than we think, and we could attach sort of um, like cerebral um, 
verbally codified labels to more um, maybe more variables of it than we realize and you know, mm -hmm. teach kids how to compose if 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 we wanted to if if I'm reading it correctly and if I'm remembering this essay correctly and as I said I remember it I, I read it quite some time ago and I understand that that there are more um, music curricula for children saying in England mm -hmm. that have tried doing this than than here but then to a large extent it's a question of how interested people are really in, in doing it. But I've had relatives, for example, say that they believe, as you were saying a while ago, we were talking about ballet, that they could become musicians in terms of being able to perform, play better or sing better if they really, really wanted to. But they've looked at me and they said, but oh, but you compose and I could never do that. And I, and I thought, you know, maybe you could, <laughs> maybe you could. I like to say that to people about everything when they tell me they never could do it. I'm like, really? Are you sure? Have you tried? You know, it's like maybe they just aren't willing to put forth the effort. It's like, never is a strong word. I mean, are you willing to put forth the effort to learn this thing? I mean, it takes effort to compose. It's as much effort as practicing. And like studying a piece, composition, it, you have to kind of sit with yourself and deal with sorting through what's working and what's direct and you have to just constantly be I, I compose at my instrument mm -hmm. so I'm like sitting there and I start and I get to imp I improvise until I come up with something that kind of works for me and I'll use that to start something out of mm -hmm. and I'm like I've always done that though I've always fooled around I was encouraged to fool around like why people I, I'm amazed at my students who are afraid of improvisation they're afraid of composition. They're like, they're afraid of hitting a wrong note. I'm like, this is like the no wrong note territory. You know, we were, I was showing you my, um, my Perciacchetti book where we were saying it was an early influence on you where he starts, his first sentence in that book is, any tone can follow any tone mm -hmm. in any combination of tones. And I mean, it, it's just the, it's the truth. It's whether you can sell it whether you can make something out of it that's going to be, that somebody calls art. Interesting. I, I didn't go the Persichetti direction, though, with my mm -hmm. composing until mm -hmm. after I had mastered some more traditional idioms. Right, yeah, yeah. Um, and what I mostly, my, my, my main takeaway, and I know that's kind of, that's not the most beautiful English phrase that it's anyway the most useful point in Persichetti for me that I remember is the, the the part about trying to maintain a fair when you're using dissonant harmonies trying to maintain a fairly homogeneous harmonic profile so that you're not going back and forth between um, dissonant harmonies and consonant harmonies in too jarring of a way. Do you remember this? Like it's like yeah, a page yeah. is really famous. Yeah, it was encouraging you to count the dissonances and the consonances in your in your uh, vertical sonorities and making sure that you don't over yeah, yeah you want to have it in balance mm -hmm. yeah that's that's what strikes that most um that's what strikes me most strongly as i look back on my study in Bersacchetti. but i remember um there, there have been times when his various exercises have been lovely little um prompts like 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 writing prompts and yeah 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 to, to, to get a person have a dream of actually doing them one day Oh, oh, I've worked through that book. You've but, actually done the was, was, It was in a class. It was in a class. Oh, it was in a yeah. class. Oh, so, in a class? Okay, yeah. yes. It was me. It was a more of a self-study kind of mm -hmm. um, class of one. It's like you've got one life to live, and you, yeah. you, you can only major in so many things, usually as an undergraduate, and they, they yeah. sit you down, you only have so much time. And that's just part yeah. of our mortal condition. I spent a lot of practice. I mean, my, I was putting six hours a day into practicing the art. I mean, that's where I was. And I did compose as part of... My, part of my practice time was composition, mm -hmm. particularly towards um, um, anything past my master. I started, you know, actually writing more in my master's. I mean, mm -hmm. There just wasn't time for it much up to that point. I, I did some things. I wrote a sonata in my undergraduate mm -hmm. that um, is more popular in style. It's actually quite difficult, but um, it's my homesick sonata, my Portland sonata. Um, That's neat. And What's Portland about it? Just in your mind, or is it something like extremely? I named it like the first movement is landing at the airport, mm -hmm. and oh my gosh. and the second movement I call fog on the Willamette. It's ah. actually a, and I um, 
so it's like I did this exercise of going through a bunch of keys like I just took a pedal away with each section mm -hmm. that was the form was like okay let's go you know from I think it was all flats to all naturals by the end or something mm -hmm. like that and and uh, I used a hymn tune and I used Shall We Gather at the River in there Neat. and um, let's and then the last one was Portland Nightlife and it was more jazzy and, mm -hmm. and upbeat kind of thing and I still get requests for that music sometimes I actually get a like it's usually someone in Europe like someone in uh, Poland will contact me it's like can I get a copy of it's like random and then I never hear anything else about it mm -hmm. <laughs> well um I used to feel the same way about leaving this area and coming back during time of during during student years. Mm -hmm. But um, so so I can I can um, I can resonate pretty deeply with that. I think well, learning an instrument well, like if you're talking about competing and mm -hmm. and uh, mastering at that level, does take a lot of energy. Right. I mean, and. Uh, have you thought of giving us a harp concerto? I have started them. Mm -hmm. Oh, them more than once you've started. <laughs> I have had more things. I have more things started than should ever have been started for the things that are not finished. Oh gosh! And uh, I could spend the rest of my lifetime just finishing what I've started. Mm -hmm. Probably have enough to do, uh, but I need to do it. And uh, you get I... bogged down. It's so hard to get bogged down in life, and in I know that um, the this particular pandemic has made me, me sit sit with my art and, and realize how much I love it, but also wonder you know is it going to continue to feed me even remotely in the future because what's happening? Um, but composition is one of those things that's actually gone well during it because I've gotten some publications taken care of and mm -hmm. student pieces, but. There's market for student pieces, you know? Mm -hmm. There's not markets for, not as much market for big virtuoso show pieces. But, uh, you know, but it's certainly nice, I mean, it would be nice to put, get some of those out there too. Yeah. Introspection. Mm -hmm. This pandemic has forced a certain amount of that. Yeah, yeah, I'm good with it, but yeah, I liked it. So many of us. You know, thank you for being the first one to say that of the two of us, because I'm somewhat embarrassed by all of the secondary gain, if you're acquainted with that phrase, mm. that I've, um, I don't know if everyone's acquainted with that phrase or not, uh, that, that I've received from the pandemic. I mean, I haven't gotten sick. No. And I've liked the introspection. Yeah. But I feel terribly guilty about that when I realize how much suffering there has been. Yeah, there is a lot of suffering. The suffering for people getting sick and their lives being disrupted. The money suffering, there's a money suffering. The suffering of lack of, you know, I don't, I don't think corporations suffer. I'm sorry. <laughs> a corporation is not a person. I don't care what anybody says. I mean, people have had to turn off that strive and focus on home and hearth. I don't think that's been a bad thing. I think everybody was like so caught up in what I call the cult of busy. Oh, I'm so busy, I can't do this, oh, la la. They go around busy and their phone is in one hand and their coffee's in the other and their car keys and they got a kid hanging off a hip and they're just busy, running around busy, 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 busy. That stopped. That stopped for a lot of people. None of that needed to be there. The kid would have been happier at home. Coffee's cheaper at home. Mm -hmm. All that running around for, I'm not sure what the purpose was. So some of that, and I mean, there's a lot of that, and I've learned, I've learned as a professional that you, you can say, I've been busy, and that's enough to say. You know, and it's like, yeah, but my busy can often involve sitting home quietly figuring out stuff inside so that I can produce my art. One of my Benedictine friends described it as a period of forced monasticism. Yeah. I think, or maybe he said a forced Lent, or possibly both. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a, you know, it's a good practice. Like, um, I mean, I, since I lived in 
the, the deep south. I lived in Louisiana for seven years. I got to see the Mardi Gras Lent pattern a little more strongly. It's much more, much more of a strong cultural thing there mm -hmm. than the general populace than it is up here. Mm -hmm. Mardi Gras week, the week, nothing happens but partying. Everybody parties. They party on the street. They party at home. They, it certainly spread COVID this last year, um, you know, and it's, there's parades of all different sorts of neighborhoods and people just do all of this. And then they really do go into Lent and they give up something and, and they take those 40 days very seriously. And, you know, uh, even people who are not more secular even kind of, you know, participate in this, in this kind of this letting it all out festival. They mm -hmm. do, they let out the crazy. And, and then, and then, you know, then they're forgiven and they give, they, then they take their, uh, their, you know, their, uh, what's the word for it? They, they take on the austerity of Lent and until Easter, I mean, it, it, it's much more, much more of a pattern of life there. The patterns and the cycles. Yeah. I saw, I believe, more of that in Montreal I mean, as well than I have. Yeah, you would have seen more in Montreal because, I mean, uh, we had a week off of teaching that mm -hmm. week if you the university. You know, you had Mardi Gras week off. You know, there weren't going to be any students in the classrooms. There weren't going to be any professors in the classroom. So, why don't And then I talk everybody's hung over the next week. Why don't I talk about my, um, yeah, my, my, my practices in terms of my composing yeah. a little bit? Well, um, life is busy, and you were talking about finishing projects and how it's difficult yeah. for you. So, yeah. I mean, you know, life is I'm busy. Just gonna start. Life is busy, and it's like here we are with um, laundry to do and cooking to do. And I okay, here, I I live with my parents, and I um, am the main cook, and I'm sort of the kitchen fellow in a lot of ways. And I love to cook, mm, and I love fun. to cook fairly elaborate stuff most of the time and I have various other duties as well we have a nice little equilibrium worked out as to what is whose duty and so forth and um, so they're, 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 they're still um, they're still fairly capable uh, and active people but um, there, are, there are certain duties which are mine of course and certain duties which are theirs and sometimes it's difficult to find time to compose I will mm -hmm. agree with that not everybody has a different way of doing things, and I'm not someone who likes to say this is the right way. But I like to compose, it usually works out about, pardon me, uh, two or three pieces a month. And um, That's a huge output, you know. Is that a huge output? It's, I, I mean, I've seen your, how many, how, why do you go, Opus number? You I keep, just, remember I just, when you've kept track with Opus numbers? Yes, yes, yes. Who and that does was, that? That, you. Was the advice, who does that? that was at the advice of, um, of a friend of mine who is actually working on a book which he hasn't published yet uh -huh. about estate planning for composers and organization for composers. Uh -huh. He's obviously a composer himself. And I said to him once, well, gee, I don't want to name drop. Anyway, I, just, okay. I, I said, gee, Fred, that's mm -hmm. not his name. I said, gee, what's your, what kind of advice might you have for me in this respect? And he said, well, I'm working on a book and you may buy it when it's available. And I said, oh, okay. <laughs> but, you know, hey, you've got to say he's thinking about his estate planning. Yep. That's right. Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have uh -huh. it be the other way. Uh-huh. And, oh, um, okay. anyway, so, um, he said, um, you definitely need to have a list of all of your compositions, a, an organized list of all of your compositions. Oh, I'm so remiss in this. Is that not an, <laughs> uh, an organized list of all of your compositions? Have it be have them be organized by um, by theme. Have them be organized chronologically. Definitely keep track of everything you've been writing. So that mm -hmm. that that's 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 definitely a, a a good place to begin. If you've written it, know about it, and know where it is. Mm -hmm. So I made a list um, chronological by composition, Wix one such and such, and I made these PDFs and I edited them all, 
um, or I, it's, it's a perpetual process going back and editing them and improving the <laughs> layout and like because if, if there's one bad accidental in the piece like one sharp marking that shouldn't be there mm -hmm. for posterity it could ruin the darn thing the blessed thing I should mm -hmm. say and so um, or, or, or although it didn't hurt Beethoven because he had great editors no far from it why do you mean I heard a Beethoven quote that he said that he got one of his um, string quartet publications back and he said he says it's just full of what he called little fishes so many mistakes they never got corrected oh my i don't know what research has been done since then huh but yeah i guess there's a lot of errors in, in some of his works oh, that i'm know, gonna be just, pickier than that anyway yeah you've been pickier so, well he you know he was probably busy well but i'm writing in a more like modernist style and if you yeah. have some really harsh dissonance in there yeah. it can really really mess things up so it, I mean, a distance where you don't want one or right. it, 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 the wrong one. It, it's 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 hard to describe. So um, anyway, I mean this this um, this this chronological list: Wix number title and and the PDFs. And then I made subfolders by genre and put them in there. This is all on my computer, of course. And then I um, where am I going with? This? I hope this isn't all deadly boring. And, no, I think um, it's and then all I have to do is every time I compose a new piece is, is add to the list. Uh -huh. And then I have a separate document that um, is like a prose document that has an, an, in text, it has um, the, the name of the piece and the opus number and then like a paragraph about it. Mm -hmm. And the, the annotations, as I like to put, as I like to call them. And so, um, Right, my, my most recent piece that I've just sketched out and made, um, noted it on the computer, is a piano sonata, my fourth, and it's opus 749. Whoa. And what I do is this, when I decide that I need to write something, and when I was an undergraduate music student, I usually worked on composing for about two hours a day, and I would plot out my schedule at the beginning of the day, or like the day before, mm -hmm. and like I'd sort of... I just, I just, I just plot out the schedule, like micromanage my time from the beginning to the end of the day, and I had this total time card punching approach, and I would just sit down from like ten to noon, which not necessarily from ten to noon, but I understand that was what Shostakovich did every day. And Sh Schubert, it was like seven to eleven or something really? like that, yeah. And and I would just kind of grind it out, and like rain or shine, whether you feel inspired or not. That was what I did when I was a student, uh -huh. and even if it turns out to be totally useless even if it turns out even if when you're doing it you feel as though you're wringing the dry sponge and what's coming uh -huh. out is nothing or or if it feels on the contrary like utter transport and like very inspired and wherever it is along that spectrum just do it because it's what it's it's your calling and it's who you are so um that's sometimes i um sometimes i really do feel a bit as though i'm bringing the dry sponge as i said but usually composing a piece about once every two weeks, I, I, I do not feel as though I'm scraping the bottom of the barrel. That, I, I do feel replenished and I do feel rejuvenated. But what I kind of have to do is shut the world out for the length of time that I'm actually creating. I don't compose at the piano. I don't compose at an instrument. I don't compose at the organ. I sit down at a desk or I sit down in my favorite armchair with a hard surface. I take, um, manuscript paper and I sketch it out really fast. No one can really read my sketches, I don't think, except for myself. They are so messy. Mm -hmm. And if it's a big ensemble piece, then I do something condensed. I have various mm -hmm. sort of methods of shorthand that I use. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I do some kinds of color coding in terms of patterns of repetition, such as there might be, mm -hmm. like varied patterns of repetition. And then maybe let it sit for a moment for critique purposes. Um, a moment. I don't literally mean a moment, longer than a moment. And then I come back and I notate it on the computer in such a way that it's mm -hmm. actually presentable. Um, if it's something that I can play for myself at the piano or the organ, I can print it, play it at the piano or the organ for proofing. Mm -hmm. um, otherwise, I can make a MIDI simulation and proof it by listening to a MIDI simulation, mm -hmm. perhaps at a slower tempo, a little yeah. bit slower tempo nice? than, yeah, yeah. than what it's really going <laughs> to sound at. And I can correct all of those little things, like the things that are wrong with the accidentals and so forth. And it, yeah, um, one piece, then another piece, then another piece, then another piece, and up to 749. And I know perfectly well 
much as I have composed 749 pieces of music, much as I have written, I believe at this point, something like 650 sonnets. I'm also a sonneteer, by the way, uh -huh. a, a poet, and I write Shakespearean and Petrarchan sonnets of various kinds. And I know that, I know that someone, anyone would say that there's an uneven factor with the quality. I, quality. Quality such, related to what? Such a How many word. sonnets have you written? It's a limp, well, no, no, it's, 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 a, it's a limp word quality, but, but even with that, I think it's better to get it out there, even if it's just you know, out of me, onto the page, into the score, onto the computer, knowing that some of it will go forth, be worthwhile, communicate, proclaim, declare what needs to be proclaimed and declare. Yeah. Work for the salvation of my soul. Gosh darn it! There the way that it go. needs to be done. I I don't I don't quite know how else to put it. And um, so, but when I'm actually in the in the creative frame of mind, I kind of need to shut the world out, be in a frenzy, start the piece, and finish the piece, and then I can come back to all of the other mundane concerns that take up life. In fact, um, you do the music first. The, the the composing first. I make a priority out of it, and that's very helpful. That's really inspiring. Thank you. And but another thing, I have to give you this as a as a caveat. My pieces tend to be run a little on the brief side. That's okay. And this has been pointed out to me before. It's sometimes in. So I don't like know. I'm playing eleven minute sonata by you. This is long enough. But, well, thank you. But, but that's a little short for sonatas. Not for sonatas the harp. Go. It's not. Okay. It's actually perfect. And um, I was going to mention that, for example, the, the most extreme example I can think of of my um, compositional process is a violin concerto, which I composed in on August 18th, 2001. And I took some of this substance that I'm drinking right now, coffee, coffee. and I yes. composed it and I think um, one waking period in the guest room of my house, because that had the most comfortable desk, the most suitable desk. Mm -hmm. And I took some nicotine breaks, because I was still a smoker at the time, and I didn't eat anything. I don't think I drank anything to coffee. It was a totally coffee and nicotine-powered um, violin concerto. And, and it, it's a 16-minute it's a, it's a piece, and it was eventually performed by the... Um, Anyway, by the Merrill Symphony Orchestra with uh -huh. Dolores Daggle. She was the violin soloist, Lajs Balak conducted. And uh, um, it was um, my only full length violin concerto that's actually been performed. And it was kind of a, you know, it was, it was, you a, did it was, that it was a day. Thing. I did that in you know, one waking period. I guess it was about, I think it may have taken me about 18 hours. To, I, I can't remember how many hours it took. I remember it was one waking period, and I remember it was fasting, and it was all mm -hmm. coffee and nicotine. But it was 2001, yeah. and that, so it was 19 years ago, and I'm 45 years old now. Uh -huh. I could punish myself. Yeah, you can punish yourself in, when you're in younger. Those days, and I can't do that can't anymore. Can't do it anymore, no. Can't do that anymore. Talking about punishing yourself. No, just kidding. Um, because Christopher's an organist and a composer, I don't have a pipe organ in my house, which is a shame. And, um, but I will be playing, I'm gonna play the second movement of his harp sonata for, for you and for him. He's not heard me play the second movement of the harp sonata either, by the way. You wrote this early this year? I think I actually composed it in 2019. Uh -huh. If you look at the front page, it should save a date. You, you, do, you do give a remarkable amount of... Um, of uh, it kind of runs together. Yes, a remarkable... No, you give more documentation. Yeah, it's from October 2019, the first movement is. You may think... Uh, they're, they're, they're all from the same... Um, about uh -huh. the same time. You may thank Sister Anne Cecile Daggle. Who was one of my uh, teachers? Mm -hmm. You may you may thank the sisters of the holy names of Jesus and Mary for the documentation. They were very particular about that. Yeah, um, people tried with me. Oh, really? They tried. It just failed. 
I'm terrible mess. I'm a terrible mess. I shouldn't say that on. I'm sorry. I'm actually very organized up here. Like inside. I have an internal organization. Religious sisters are very difficult to defy as teachers. I can imagine. I, I never had one. So I, the closest I came was Mary and my, my, my oldest harp teacher. But she right. wasn't a sister. But she, she was taught by She the was sisters. taught by sisters. And she had sisters as students. I see. But they were usually more, um, less exacting. Than, than she was herself. Anyway. May I say a word about this movement before you play do. it? Please do. Well, this is from a three-movement harp sonata of mine, and this was scheduled for debut in a premiere in a concert which was canceled because of COVID, um, right, right after the, the restrictions began. The second movement is um, inspired by and based upon a chorale, a German hymn, which in turn is inspired by Psalm 137, beside the streams of Babylon, about the exile of the Israelites. today or any person who was thinking, man, I wish I could write music and they're being held back. What would you tell them? Even if they don't even know an instrument, what would you tell them? Oh gosh. Um, that would depend so much on what was holding them back. Held back by people around them, held back by their own lack of confidence, held back by their own lack of knowledge or education held back by 
circumstances such as lack of money. I, it's, it's difficult to say. I'd say that um, I remember reading on a blog by the British author Jeanette Winterson once. She said people are always asking her, I want to be a writer. What should I do? And she says, write. Right. So if you want to write music, compose. Compose. By the way. There's a thing though. There's a thing though, and that is that there's a way in which anyone can write who has some literacy that is granted to everyone in say, mm-hmm. schools. But there's there's a there's a there's a bigger technical leap if you want to be a composer. Access to instruments, access to performers, access to music literacy, which is not a granted in the same way that access to um, that access to verbal literacy is. So, um, gosh, I'd say a person really does need to master an instrument, um, and a person um, needs some music literacy, and a person needs some time, and a person needs an environment that respects that ambition, that understands that it's an important ambition. It's, it's great to be able to advocate for it. Yeah. Um, you, and you need um, people who are willing to listen to you in regards to that. Um, and you need, you need to make a priority for it as something that is just, just, just crucial for you. You have to have a tremendous thirst for it. And... Um, be willing to sacrifice for it and be willing to realize that um, even when it doesn't necessarily feel good, even when there are other pursuits that maybe would be more pleasurable or more amusing, you're going to do this. You're going, you're going to put this first. Uh-huh. You're going to put this first. And it's not always going to be clear what the rewards are or when they're going to come. But you kind of have to trust and obey mm-hmm. a, a little bit. Well, you know, I say to people, listen, there's people who will spend an enormous amount of effort and time going on a ski vacation, for instance. It's a must be, it's fun. It's, it's fun. It's hard work. It's cold. You have to master skis. You have to have equipment. You have to have a place to ski that you go to that allows you to ski. It's that same sort of effort. The pleasure is also there. The payoff is also there. That wonder of, I know when I've just actually gotten to, those rare times when I've gotten to sit and have my own music played by someone else, the thrill of that has been enormous. It's enormous. It's like, oh my goodness. I did that, you know, it's like this, this, this just, it's as thrilling. It's as thrilling as making it down that ski slope alive. You will not break a leg doing, listening to your music play. <laughs> Unless you just trip in the hall, I don't know. Right. Anyway, right. it's been a joy having you here. Thank you for coming and for talking with me. I hope to have you back sometime. Thank you so much, Kimberly. I hope the same. Stay well, everyone.